Hey everyone, it's Ramon and welcome to the Human Optimization Podcast, science-based tools to optimize your physiology, master your mind, and unlock your potential. Now before we get into the episode, a quick word from our sponsor, Brain First, earth-grown, evidence-based nutrition. One of the products that I love and I take every workday to fire up my brain and get laser-like focus and interflow quickly is Genius Mode. Now, it took me years of research and testing to formulate Genius Mode for Brain First because I was sick of having dozens of bottles and powders to have to mix together all the different ingredients to give me the effect that I wanted. So Genius Mode has the best science-backed ingredients for peak mental performance in meaningful doses supported by experimental data. I personally take it shortly after I wake up and the focus and the drive and the motivation and the mental clarity lasts me all day. Now to get Genius Mode, use code RAMON for 10% off in addition to any other subscription discounts that you get on the BrainFirst website. Just head to mybrainfirst.com and you'll see a bunch of reviews from other people who are absolutely loving this product. mybrainfirst.com, code RAMON for 10% off and get your brain an instant upgrade. Let's get into the episode. Enjoy, my friends. Welcome to the show. Great to have you here. Thanks. It's, It's great to be here. So you are the co-founder of Bristle Health, right? Correct. Yeah, co-founder and CEO. CEO. So, so uh, just explain for our listeners first of all, what does Bristle Health do? Yeah. So I think, you know, to put it very concisely, we we really help people measure, understand, and improve their oral health, and. We do that leveraging the oral microbiome, so the makeup of bacteria, fungi, and viruses that reside in your oral cavity. Um, We analyze saliva, understand what kind of microbes are in your oral microbiome, and that directly informs us as to what your oral health status is and risk for disease. Right. So, you know, like gut microbiome, hot topic at the moment. Um, we've had, I mean, a bunch of guests on from um, Emma and Maya to um, Christine Bashara talking about the gut microbiome, but oral microbiome, not something that a lot of people are talking about, right? Unless you're kind of in the biohacking field. Yeah, I was, I think we're, we've always been kind of surprised, um, that the oral microbiome has been, I wouldn't even say secondary, like really ter- it's far down the list, right? Gut microbiome, skin microbiome, vaginal microbiome, um, which was surprising to me because I've done gut microbiome tests. And uh, in terms of sample collection, the oral microbiome is is definitely my favorite so far. Yeah. So well, how did you get into this yourself? Like what's, what's the, the backstory here? Yeah, so so our founding team, um, we all come from different areas, but the the common piece is we all have a background in genomics and sequencing. So in one way or another, I come from the commercial side of genomics. Our CSO comes from the research side, um, and you know I think it was a it was really a case of being in the right place at the right time. Um, genomics has obviously been gaining in popularity. Uh, companies like 23andMe and Ancestry have, have gotten it more into the consumer side, and then we've seen an explosion in using genomics clinically. Right? So we're starting to use genomics for early detection of cancer. We're doing it for uh, predisposition for other systemic diseases. And I think in the same vein, we've seen a really big shift to using 
other kinds of technologies, so like wearables, um, to start to quantify other aspects of our health and use that to inform preventive strategies and behavioral changes that we can make to mitigate future risk. So, you know, we'd, we'd seen kind of this explosion in all of these different applications and ways that we could improve health. Uh, and, you know, I think it was just a, a conversation that I was having with my co-founder, well, my now co-founder, um, then friend. And he is, I think, this cliche case of being religious about oral hygiene and inevitably having cavities every time he he would go to the dentist and he had a dental appointment the next day he was you know uh <laughs> complaining and kind of venting to me about it and i was sitting there on my high horse because you know i wasn't the best about oral hygiene but for whatever reason i never had issues going to the dentist and, and really had very few cavities for my entire life and having worked with gut microbiome companies and, and having seen, you know, what genomics could do, it, it kind of hit us in the face. And we started looking into um, the existing research around the oral microbiome and basically uncovered that, you know, we, we've known for decades uh, that cavities and gum disease, the two most prevalent diseases on the planet since 1990, are rooted in the oral microbiome. There's a subset of, you know, 12 or 13 pathogenic bacteria that directly cause these diseases. And naturally, we started trying to see what was on the market around it and, and really found nothing. Um, the, the oral care and dental industry has, I think, been relatively stagnant, right? When you think about your visit to the dentist, you go in, they do an observational screening, they'll do an x-ray, we're looking for the presence and severity of physical symptoms related to existing disease. And we knew that sequencing could detect these microbes much earlier. We'd seen it done with the gut microbiome. And that was really the starting point for the company was, can we shift the standard of dental care from this very kind of reactive uh, procedure first model of care into something that was preventive? Mm. On the genomic side, is this something that you've always had an interest in like had what, what was your entry into this space yeah my, my background's in biochemistry um i grew up in san diego so illumina which is kind of the the giant in genomics was in my backyard um so i i was exposed to it pretty early and i started my career there um you know i think personally i've always been kind of an inch deep mile wide scientist which isn't great if you are planning to go get your phd <laughs> Um, so I, I jumped on the commercial side and, and started working just kind of across the industry. And it was that exposure, I think, that that really led to, um, you know, kind of stumbling onto this idea for Bristle. Mm. So oral, oral microbiome and oral health, like, what do we need to know? Because I think, again, for a lot of our listeners, and, and maybe some of them are a little bit more familiar with this, but I, I'm going to take a guess and say the majority of us uh, uh, not so much and, you know, oral microbiome, oral health. My first thoughts that come to mind are, okay, like occasional trips to the dentist for checkups. Um, you know, I do a few basic things like oil pulling and uh, those sorts of things, but you know, what, what do we need to know? Where, where's a good place to start here? Yeah. There's, there's so many places. Um, 
I guess we can we can start with the history. I think the history of of the oral microbiome is really interesting. Ignoring kind of the oral health piece for now, uh, I I can't remember exactly who it was, but some of the first bacteria that were ever observed actually came from the oral cavity uh, hundreds of years ago. Um, so in a lot of ways, the oral microbiome was actually one of the starting points for microbiology as a practice. And over the decades, there was more and more research looking at the role of these specific pathogenic microbes as they related to oral disease. You can imagine hundreds of years ago, oral health wasn't great. People were losing their teeth all the time. And, uh, you know, the mouth is, is this just exposed component of our bodies. It's, it gets exposed to pathogenic bacteria, gets exposed to beneficial ones. So it really is kind of a breeding ground. Um, if, if you're interested in microbiology and all of a sudden it becomes this relevant scientific topic. So the amount of kind of basic research, I think, wasn't necessarily looking at the connection between the oral microbiome and oral health. It was actually just using the mouth as a really easy entry point to start building the foundation of microbiology as a practice. Um, you know, fast forward a couple hundred years and people are starting to realize and identify specific bacteria that are related to oral disease. And if we look at kind of the big two cavities and gum disease, you know, there's a subset of, let's call it, you know, 20 bacteria. And just for easy math, 10 might be related to periodontal disease or gum disease, and 10 might be acetogenic. So they produce acid and that acid decays your teeth and eventually leads to a cavity. Um, and that was kind of where the science stopped, I think, for a really long time. Like we, we were aware of these bacteria. They're commonly known as the red and orange complex. And dental school students are taught about this um, when they're getting their degrees. You can find a bunch of research online about, about this subset of bacteria. But for whatever reason, those learnings weren't really translated into clinical care. And you know, I think that there may be some interesting underpinnings with the, the origin of dentistry as a practice. Like we know that it started in barbershops. It's kind of this very surgical, um, almost engineering focused practice, but uh, for one reason or another microbiology and really kind of that start never made its way into the way that we assess oral health. So Fast forward another couple of decades to today, and we have this amazing technology, um, genetic sequencing, next generation sequencing that allows us to expand our scope and, and detect all of these bacteria. And we're finding that, you know, surprise biology is a lot more complex than we ever thought it was. Uh, and going back to the oral cavity, we have been able to uncover that the, the makeup of microbes in, in our mouths are way more diverse than, than we ever imagined. So it's not just those 10 to 12 or 20 bacteria related to disease. There's actually 700 plus bacteria that have been associated with the oral microbiome. And on average, each of us has anywhere from, you know, hundred to 250. Uh, and I think, you know, each of those bacteria has a role to play. We kind of, had the same assumption with um, with RNA for a while, kind of, or uh, sorry, 
non-coding um, DNA, like junk DNA. We didn't think that it did anything for years, and now we're starting to see that it plays a really important role. And I think we're starting to see the same thing with the oral microbiome. So we've gone from kind of this idea of 20 bacteria that were related to disease to 700 bacteria, but we don't know what they do. Um, and a lot of the research in the last couple of years has uncovered the role of these bacteria in not only our oral health, but our overall health. And I think a, a really apt description that I've heard is, you know, on the one hand, our mouths are kind of like a gateway to the body. So they can let pathogenic bacteria pass through into our body and that can increase our risk for systemic disease. Um, but at the same time, our mouths can also be more like a mirror and reflect changes that are going on in other parts of our body. And we've seen that quantitatively and qualitatively in the microbiome. Mm. So what, what sort of impact does, does this have? What sort of impact does the oral microbiome and the bacteria have on things like you mentioned um, uh, systemic disease, uh, perhaps even things like brain health, cognition, these sorts of things. What, what, what do we know so far? Yeah. So again, for the past couple of decades, we, we missed the bridge between the discoveries of the oral microbiome and putting it into clinical practice. So when you go through the literature, there's a lot of associations between uh, poor oral health and systemic disease poor oral health kind of being that surface level understanding, right? So we know that uh, as, as people age, their oral health declines and cognitive decline also happens at the same time. And there's a correlation between populations. But again, there was never kind of a, a deeper understanding of why or if those two are connected. Um, we see the same thing with uh, declining oral health or the prevalence of gum disease and hypertension and cardiovascular disease. Again, clinical correlations, I call them um, clinical anecdotes, right? Like if you talk to a hundred dentists, 99 of them will tell you, of course, you know, my, my patients uh, with heart disease have way higher prevalence of gum disease, but it was still something that nobody ever really kind of looked into. And we see the same thing with most chronic conditions. Diabetes is also in there. Um, and the oral microbiome is that bridge between the two. So we have found that specific bacteria in the oral microbiome that are connected to oral disease, I think one of the most notorious is P. gingivalis, has also been implicated in cardiovascular disease, so specifically infective endocarditis. And it's also been implicated in Alzheimer's, so cognitive decline. And that's one example of, you know, 150 bacteria that are residing in our mouths that um, are tied to conditions that are outside of the oral cavity. What, um, just talking about the, the literature for a moment, are there many intervention studies uh, out there demonstrating certain effects? Like what's the state of the literature? Yeah. So that's, that's been another kind of interesting piece. Um, there have been numerous studies looking at the impact of preventive dental care and improving, again, kind of this top level idea of oral health with reduced overall healthcare expenditures. Uh, there was, let's see, Kaiser in the Pacific Northwest, as well as Cigna had both performed clinical studies looking at patient populations. I think both of the patient populations were diabetic, 
And uh, they looked at people diagnosed with diabetes that also had periodontal disease and the impact that more consistent dental care and the reduction of the severity of periodontal disease had on their overall healthcare costs. Can't remember the exact numbers, but I think the average between the two was something like a $1,500 per year reduction in overall healthcare expenditures, ignoring the dental piece, just getting people that preventive dental care and improving their oral health. Yeah. yeah. What, what sort of um, preventative dental care are we talking about? Like, to what extent are, we, uh, are they taking this in the research? It's pretty, uh, pretty shallow. <laughs> it's really just getting people into the dentist twice a year and making sure that they get cleanings. Um, and I think that it touches on one of the most pervasive problems with oral health, which is nobody really thinks it's important. Uh, they, they, exactly. I mean, you know, if, if I was sitting here talking to you and all of a sudden my hand started bleeding that that would be an emergency to me like that's a sign that something's wrong but uh you know when we brush our teeth and there's blood in the sink you kind of just ignore it and i think that a big part of that is uh the i need to be a i need to toe a line here but the the dental care experience isn't comfortable and it's not enjoyable and it's something that people try to avoid and i think that instead of uh using dental care as a barrier to improving your oral health, which is what's currently going on. Like let's eliminate the barrier and focus on just making it really easy to improve your oral health at home. And we'll see all of these improved outcomes on the other side. Hmm. What are some of the studies that you would like to see being conducted in this space? Uh, so the easy ones, I mean, I haven't seen a study outside of the, the research that we're doing that has quantitatively shown the impact of brushing and flossing on pathogenic bacterial load in the oral cavity, which you would think is pretty important and something that you would want to show if you're a company selling those products. Um, so so at, at kind of the highest level, I would love to see more research around the, the impact that zero to one behavioral changes in oral health can have on oral health outcomes. Uh, you know, as a company, we're continuing to build our database. And I think that there are some really interesting questions to ask. There was uh, a study done, let's see, in 2018, I think, and I'll send you the paper, but they uncovered, it was kind of the, the foundational study that uncovered P. gingivalis in the brains of Alzheimer's patients. And um, the idea is that P. gingivalis produces a toxin called gingipanes, and gingipanes can influence uh, the creation of uh, tau and beta amyloid proteins, and you know that's related to, to the onset of Alzheimer's. Um, but I think that that theory and you know that hypothesis is relevant across all of these different indications and. All of the research to date has been in really small patient populations, like it's more of a proof of concept. Um, but I would love to see, again, more quantitative research identifying the role of bacteria in the oral microbiome as they relate to heart disease and Alzheimer's and diabetes. Because the more research that we can do, the more likely we're, we are to uncover the mechanism of action. And we can create the interventions that we need to potentially make a huge dent in some of the most common chronic conditions on the planet. 
Uh, we've seen two companies that I know of, two therapeutics companies, spring up in light of that original research around Alzheimer's. Um, Cortexon and Keystone Bio are both developing therapeutic candidates that are targeting P. gingivalis or gingipanes. And it's not to cure periodontal disease, it is to slow the progression or stop Alzheimer's. Yeah, super fascinating. Talk to us about uh, some of these. Re- I, I want to. I want to find out more about the company and the tests that you're running and um, what you're doing there. But first of all, uh, I think it's important to go over some of the practices that we currently have. I'd love to hear your thoughts on everything from. Well, why don't we start with um, uh, what's a common one? Fluoride, right? No neurotoxin. Um, we, but also we know the dose makes the poison with so many people are anti-fluoride. So many people are pro-fluoride. Like what, what are your, what are your thoughts? What does the literature say? Where are we at on the fluoride debate? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, it's something that comes up with, uh, it is a hot topic. Um, and my, my easy escape answer is I, I don't know what, the long-term effects of fluoride exposure are because again i don't think that there's been enough research quantitatively showing what those effects um, become i think if we're just focusing on the oral cavity fluoride's been shown to to strengthen enamel and reduce the rate of of cavities um so you know if you are just a mouth it sounds great i think that just like other areas of biology, there are downstream effects. And until we really measure like what those downstream effects are and we understand what the implications of, of using something like fluoride and having that consistent exposure through our water and through our toothpaste and um, you know, its relation to concentration, you know, I think that we have to, to be aware of uh, the potential negative side effects. Uh, it's, it's tough because, you know, a lot of the existing research, there is a clear um, advantage to using fluoride when it comes to protecting your teeth. And I'm comfortable saying that. I think um, the neurotoxicity, I need to look into more. And I think maybe the, the most exciting part is that a lot of oral care companies are investing into materials outside of fluoride uh, that are just as effective. And my short answer is, if you're not comfortable using fluoride, there are alternatives that have been shown to work as well or better than fluoride. Um, I think the CDC is coming out with something pretty soon, though. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask, what are the alternatives to fluoride? And, and are they as good? And, and can they be localized to having an effect just on the teeth without uh, you know, having effects on the rest of the you know, potentially nervous system and the rest of the body? I think so. Um, nanohydroxyapatite has been one of the, the kind of touted ingredients as an alternative to fluoride. Uh, and I think it, it mimics and it spurs enamel production um, in a lot of ways better than fluoride does. I think fluoride is more of kind of like a protective material where this is more focused on regeneration. Um, and you know, it, it's not in our drinking water. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> what about um, what about oil pulling? We're doing a lot of the the research around that as well. Um, you know, I think 
with with a lot of the the things that are coming out and we might as well throw you know uh activated charcoal toothpaste in there as well um there are a lot of things on the market that that are making some pretty significant claims as to what they can do with regards to your health or your oral health and i haven't seen um the hard science backing up those claims in the way that that i think i would want to see uh and that's one of the goals of of bristle is you know with every test that we do we we essentially create like a new data set or at least a new data point and uh we think that we'll be able to start publishing a lot of objective results around the efficacy of some of these practices um oil pulling i i, I don't think it's bad i don't know if it's the one thing that everybody should be doing to improve their oral health either yeah. uh charcoal toothpaste i i don't know if it's bad i do know that it is a pretty harsh material to be using on your teeth and it can increase your your risk for cavities but um you know there just hasn't been i don't think that there's been a checkpoint created or some kind of universal standard for determining how effective a lot of these oral health products and, and recommendations are and, and that's kind of where we want to be yeah and i'm not not sure um whether there are, i would imagine there are big differences in the different types of activated charcoal but i'm imagining that some could be a lot more abrasive than others and you know is there a rating scale for that like there is with toothpaste like it's it's you know um quite an unregulated i suppose they fall it falls into the sort of supplement category, I would imagine, these activated charcoal products? Somewhere, it's somewhere in there. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, uh, and, and I think the other question too is, you know, there is a, an abrasion rating for toothpaste. Hmm. I had never thought about how abrasive the toothpaste I was using before I started Bristle. Um, so I think the other big kind of challenge is like, if we do come up with some kind of rating system and we do have this objective information, how do we make sure that people are aware of it and they're, they're using that to inform their choices, uh, you know, when they go looking for a solution? Yeah, yeah. I remember um, looking for the, uh, the abrasion rating for the different toothpaste that I was in, um, looking at using. Uh, this was many years ago and it was very difficult to find. There was only a few of the top kind of brands that you could get hold of that information at the time. I don't know if that's changed now, but it's not like you pick up a toothpaste box, at least here in Australia, and you see the, the rating on the box or anything. So I think that that's, um, it's a theme, I think, throughout oral care products where there isn't, there's not a lot of information beyond a few words on the box that really inform you as to what the best product is for you or whatever your condition is. Um, there's people will put teeth whitening toothpaste. What, what does that mean? Like what is in there that's, that's making it better other than a higher abrasion, maybe that's just scraping more stuff off of the surface of your tooth. Um, there's, you know, gum inflammation reducing toothpaste, but it has the same ingredients as, you know, the uh, tooth pain reducing toothpaste right next to it. So I think, I think a lot of the, I think there's a big misunderstanding in, in what the difference is between oral care products. And there's not a lot of guidance when you go to a store and you're looking at a, a wall of like 300 tubes of toothpaste to tell you which one is actually going to address what I need. What about um, flossing? 
Uh, that should be part of regular practice every day, twice a day. Yeah, I'm the the data that we've seen suggests that flossing is is a good oral health practice. Um, you know, I think just like everything else, flossing the correct way is as important as doing the practice itself. Uh, a lot of people do the you know towel kind of yeah. let's let's really get in there and. Uh, clear out everything we can. Um, and that's actually not, I think, uh, procedurally, like the right way to floss your teeth. It's not supposed to be this, I'm trying to think of the word, but it, I'm sure anybody listening can imagine what I'm talking about. Uh, you know, it is supposed to be a really gentle procedure. The The idea is not to uh, try to you know, squeegee the hell out of whatever's between your teeth. The idea is to expose these anaerobic pathogenic bacteria to oxygen, which kills them. And you don't need to go up into your gum line, you know, bordering on a self lobotomy to, to do that. I'm imagining um, when, when you're doing this action and for people <laughs> um, will be watching parts of this video, if we clip this and, and end up putting this clip on, on um, social media of this segment just here, um, you'll see the action. I'm reminded of, you know, the old school uh, guys who would have cut tree, cut into trees, and they've got one guy standing on one side of the saw and one guy standing on the other side of the saw, and they're hacking back and forth. Into yeah, I need it. I'm gonna use that. Yeah, that's a that's a way better description. Post post that one. Not yeah. mine. <laughs> um, all right. So flossing. Be gentle. Um, obviously brush teeth, fluoride, um, we have some alternatives, oil pulling, maybe, maybe not, uh, any, any other practices that we need to be incorporating on the mouth side before we get to the diet and lifestyle side of things? Yeah. I mean, I think it's worth, uh, calling out mouthwash while we're kind yeah. of on this, on this topic, um, mouthwash and I, I, it's interesting. I mean, um, you know, I've, I've spoken with people that are religious about their gut health, will never take antibiotics and use mouthwash every day. Yeah. And they don't realize I, when that, you know, two liter bottle of mouthwash that says kills 99.9% .9 of bacteria related to, to gingivitis, that's wiping out your oral microbiome completely. Um, and, and it opens up the gates for a lot of these pathogenic microbes to then move in. Uh, it's, it's the same stance as, as antibiotics. Um, there are some, some better mouthwashes out there that, that don't wipe out the oral microbiome. But I mean, I think again, kind of in the same trend, like the, one of the big problems with oral care products right now is their broad spectrum and relatively ineffective like they they kind of work for everybody but they don't really work for anyone so let's talk about some of the things that i know many people wouldn't consider in the same sort of sentence or in the same realm as uh you know oral health so most people will be thinking yeah i brush my teeth i floss my teeth i go to the dentist a few times a year what about the impact of diet and lifestyle? Yeah. I mean, it's, that's another kind of surprising piece to me where um, we can focus on diet first and then move on to lifestyle, but it's, uh, it's a surprising thing 
for some reason, the mouth just seems to get left out of the equation for, for any decision that anybody makes. Um, and uh, with diet, I think part of it is just, again, a, first of all, a lack of research really connecting certain dietary changes to oral health outcomes. Everybody knows that sugar leads to cavities, but um, there are a lot of other insights related to your oral microbiome that, that can impact your oral health and, and your overall health as well. So like a really good example, there are a subset of bacteria in the oral microbiome that are, are nitrate reducing bacteria. And the more nitrate reduction you can do, I guess nitrate reduction is tied to a lower risk for heart disease and lower blood pressure. Um, the bacteria in your oral microbiome have an enzyme that performs that action. That enzyme is not natural to the human body. So if you don't, if you don't have those microbes that can perform that function, you can't reduce the nitrates in the foods that you're consuming. And you know, the lack of those bacteria is tied to higher blood pressure. Um, so understanding what's in your oral microbiome and, and what's not in your oral microbiome may lead you to change your diet and not only, you know, improve your oral health, but also reduce your risk for heart disease in the future. Um, there's a lot of other examples, you know, the, the kinds of foods we eat. There, there was a really good, I think, I think he's based out of Australia. There's a really good book called Jaws. Um, and the, the author, I'll need to look it up. Uh, the author describes, of course, I type in Jaws and the movie comes up. I should have thought that one through. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's see. So, you know, the author talks about, uh, the author talks about, the, the industrial revolution and its impact on oral health. Um, so the idea is before the industrial revolution, we were uh, eating a lot of like two year foods. We were using our jaws more to, to kind of um, to eat. And post-industrial revolution, when we were able to start processing foods, everything got a lot softer. And switching the the texture of, of our diet actually has impacted the way that our jaws um, grow over time and it's shifted our teeth and you know one of the other really interesting things about our mouths is it is unlike the gut i think it's not just one environment there are a ton of different uh sub environments within the mouth that each harbor different kinds of bacteria so the, the change to our jaw structure introduces new environments that may favor pathogenic bacteria to grow in. Um, and a lot of that has to do with this historical shift in the way that we've uh, processed and, and consumed food. So sugar, bad. I mean, like, let's be honest, we all know that. Right? What about some things that we may not have thought about like refined carbohydrates, um, bread, cereals, these sorts of things. Do we know if the, is there any impact there for overconsuming a lot of these types of re refined products? 
Um, and and I, I'll say that with the caveat, it really depends on the individual's microbiome. Um, yeah. So specific bacteria can uh, can metabolize certain carbohydrates and, and not others, right? So for some people, eating certain kinds of carbohydrates may not be a big deal. There, there may not be the production of, of acid in your mouth that leads to cavities, uh, whereas for somebody else, it, it might. Um, but I think, you know, the first step is understanding what those bacteria are, because we can characterize exactly what those bacteria metabolize, and that can help inform dietary choices going forward. I think the really exciting thing is if we can shift that community, whether it's through prebiotics, probiotics, um, you know, phage therapies, we can open up new dietary options for people or, or get them the nutrients that they may not have access to right now. Yeah, yeah. I think that's one of the things with the behavior change and a discussion that um, I often have with friends and family members around uh, even things like electric cars. It's like there's, you know, it, it, most people, if presented with an alternative to some gas guzzling environmental disaster of a motor vehicle, they would choose the better option, right? So it's not until an electric car comes along that you know, eventually is going to have positive, you know, without getting into this argument and let's just use it as an analogy. Um, you know, most people would choose an alternative if they know that it's going to be beneficial for the environment. Let's just say that, you know, if, it, if it's going to cost around the same amount, it's going to do the same kind of thing or better, they'll choose that option. So saying, you know, you've got to cut out these food groups, you've got to cut out these food groups, you've got to stop eating this and that's going to help you is at least I've found with people that I've worked with over the last 20 years is nowhere near as impactful as saying, remove this and replace it with this, or just start shifting towards eating more of these things and slowly start to cut some of these things out. And, and I think that most people would find that uh, infinitely easier than just trying to eliminate maybe for a lot of people, 50% of the things that they're currently eating on a day-to-day -day basis. Right. I think you're touching on, like one of the biggest challenges with personalized care, which is finding a line between what the most impactful changes are and what the most likely changes are that a person will actually do. Um, and, and, you know, like kind of moving into lifestyle, hmm. obviously smoking is a risk factor for gum disease. Obviously you're going to get poor oral health. And we cited as a risk factor in somebody's results, do I, do I expect every single person who gets a high gum disease risk score to quit smoking, something that they may have been addicted to for decades based on the results of one test? No. I mean, I think it's, it's infeasible um, and impractical to expect them to do that. So what we can do is focus on the changes that they are willing to make in their life and try to mitigate the risk for the choices that they're not willing to change. Hmm. So let, let's let's move into the oral microbiome tests, um, like what the company actually does. Uh, what's the process? What's the what are the steps that people go through? What kind of information do we get? And then recommendations, like how how does it all work? Yeah. So from a process standpoint, it's pretty simple. Um, people just order the kit online. We're looking into distribution channels to get it into clinics and stores, but you, you get your saliva collection kit. 
Um, if anybody's taken like a 23andMe test before, it's kind of the same process. You, you go online, you register your barcode, you fill out a short questionnaire. Um, ours is a bit more dental related than what most people are used to probably, but you know, answer some simple questions about your clinical background, some behavioral questions, uh, and then you spit in a tube and send it back. We all analyze it in our lab and I can touch on the technology in a bit, but uh, in about two weeks, you'll get your results and we just email you a link, you access them online. Uh, right now, the indications that we show are your scores related to the abundance of bacteria broken out into indications. So you'll, you'll see a section on your risk for gum disease as it relates to the abundance of bacteria related to that indication. Same thing for cavities, uh, bad breath, and then we have a, a beneficial um, or commensal kind of section as well. Yeah, awesome. So the, let, uh, you touched on the tech. What's the, what's the process? Yeah, so this is one of the really exciting things that we've been working on. Um, I guess starting very narrowly, uh, a lot of technologies, I, I kind of referenced this idea of 12 bacteria related to periodontal disease, and I think it's a good place to start. A lot of technologies today use uh, an analysis method called qPCR, and qPCR uses probes, so kind of like little hooks, and you define exactly what you want to detect, and you're looking for the presence or absence of, of that bacteria in the sample. So uh, there are some tests on the market that are designed to look for those 12 bacteria, and if you have them, it'll detect them and it'll show you as high risk for periodontal disease, which is fine. Um, but as we discussed, you know, most people have between 100 to 250 different kinds of bacteria in their oral microbiome. And looking for the presence or absence of 12 seems like you're missing a lot of contextual information. We know that one, more than 12 bacteria are implicated in periodontal disease. So you might have one that's not included in that test and you'll never know if you have it. Uh, and we also know that, um, you know, the science behind those bacteria is a lot more complicated than presence or absence. Some of these bacteria work together to drive disease. They're, they're community driven infections. Uh, some bacteria are more virulent than others. Um, so there's a lot of shades of gray. And in that sense, you know, some of these uh, perio tests are, are really kind of narrow and, and miss, I think, a lot of positive cases. Um, so going one step further, if you've taken a gut microbiome test, uh, most of them use a technology called 16S sequencing. And, you know, if, I suppose if qPCR is like, you've got a list of 10 people, you know, 16S is kind of like the, the bacterial thumbprint. You'll be able to identify all of the bacteria in the sample. So you, you're not restricted to uh, a hypothesis. You can do a lot of discovery efforts, but that's as far as you'll get. You'll, you'll be able to identify what's there. You'll get some relative abundance information um, and those will be your results. Uh, the advantage there is you're getting, you know, if you have 100 bacteria in your mouth, you'll be able to identify all 100 theoretically. The, the miss is that there are other microbes in your mouth that are also implicated in health and disease. 
um, fungi and viruses. And that's kind of where, where our test comes in. Uh, so we use a, a method called shotgun metagenomics. And the way that our test works is we sequence everything in the sample. We don't make any assumptions. We don't leave anything out. We get whole genome sequence information for all of the, all of the microbes, you know, whatever viruses we pick up, the fungi, the bacteria, and that provides us with a much richer data set that we can get better insights from. Um, so compared to 16S, we're getting whole genome sequence information that allows us to differentiate between different strains of bacteria. So we can get more specific around what we're detecting and what the implications are. We're getting microbes outside of bacteria, so we can start factoring those into somebody's risk score and actually do a lot of um, research discovery on our side, because again, you know, the oral microbiome has been this relatively untouched area of research and the whole genome sequence information also provides us with insights into functional characteristics of the microbes. So we can start looking at how different microbes work to get to drive disease, which can inform, you know, potentially new therapeutic targets and interventions in the future. Mm -hmm. So we, we take the test we uh, implement some of the recommendations. So we, we have the intervention and then we retest after a period of time. Is there a, a recommendation for how often we do this or how many times a year we do this? Yeah, so right, we're actively doing some research around um, what the optimal cadence is. I think it'll differentiate from person to person. Uh, we have a, a single test option and then we have a twice yearly and quarterly subscription option. Uh, but we think that monthly is actually going to be the most impactful uh, kind of cadence to measure your oral microbiome. I think, you know, for certain people, like there's a lot of different use cases for why people are taking the test. I think there's people that want to use this as, there's people that haven't been to the dentist in a few years um, and want to use this as, for lack of a better word, a gut check on their oral health. Uh, so that's kind of where the single test comes into, into play. Um, but the majority of our users are actually, and it's a, it's, it's a sad term, but we have deemed them as, uh, frustrated sufferers, which I think probably resonates with a lot of listeners. Um, these are people that have been like my co-founder battling oral disease their entire life and have been trying to do these interventions or get a more specific diagnosis and haven't got, been able to get insights. It's, it's this recurring cycle of procedure, very invasive, expensive procedures, uh, a waiting period, uh, kind of anticipatory nightmare of when your next dental appointment is, and then uh, you rinse and repeat. And this is kind of where the test uh, starts to evolve more into what I would call like chronic disease management than anything else. Um, these people are getting a, an accurate understanding of what the bacterial drivers are of their condition. They're able to test a bunch of interventions and see which ones work the best. And because our test detects those pathogenic bacteria at the very smallest amounts, a lot of the times we can detect risk for disease before those physical symptoms have manifested. Right. Can you, can you share with us a, a case study and maybe um, use uh, your co-founder as Brian, right? Yeah, yeah. 
I don't know if you want to use him as a case study. Oh, uh, no, I love using him as a case study. Um, maybe share with us some of the some of the insights that have come out of the test, some of the um, recommendations that have been implemented, and then what kind of changes um, have been found. Yeah, so so I'll use, I guess for, for background, we've been doing a clinical research study with the University of the Pacific Dental School, amazing team. Um, of clinicians and students in San Francisco. And we've been analyzing patient samples and then uh, getting access to electronic health records and the dental diagnosis from that day. So that's provided us with this amazing kind of clinical baseline that we can use for characterizing oral disease. Uh, and a few of those cases, and what we've seen with our users is patients will go into the clinic uh, for a checkup and they'll be diagnosed as healthy and we will actually be able to detect uh, a significantly high abundance of you know, cavities causing bacteria, let's say. Now, they didn't have signs of decay when they were in the clinic, so they weren't, uh, nothing showed up on an x-ray or they weren't even x-rayed you know, in the first place because the dentist didn't see anything. But according to our test, there's a really high abundance and for better or for worse, one of the best interventions that you can do is uh, a high fluoride prescription toothpaste um, for obviously like a limited amount of time, but it helps strengthen the enamel and prevents the onset of decay. So we've had cases where users have detected high abundances of cavities causing bacteria, even you know within weeks of a dental appointment that was missed and have taken on interventions and, and lowered the abundance of that bacteria. So something that, you know, theoretically could have uh, progressed into a cavity and, and probably a filling or a root canal or something like that at their next six month checkup is mitigated now. Yeah, that's um, And, you know, I think there have been some other we've started to see a lot of ex well, exciting and tragic uh, edge cases that I think speak to this idea that oral health is a lot more than just cavities or gum disease. Um, so like I said, usually people have between, you know, 100, 250 different kinds of bacteria in their mouth. There's a lot of diversity and it's the, the balance of those good and bad microbes that determines your risk for oral disease. But we've started to see um, some cases come through where they didn't have any bacteria related to oral disease. So they didn't have those red or orange complex bacteria when they got their results back for all intents and purposes, their risk was low because they didn't have the bacteria that cause or are related to cavities and gum disease. But what we did find was some of these patients only had five or six bacteria that made up the entire oral microbiome. And that's it. Um, so it's this extremely low diversity. And in a lot of those cases, there was one dominant bacteria that made up 80 to 90% of the oral microbiome. And in those cases, uh, we've actually started to see some consistency in what that bacteria was. So it is a, it's a bacteria that, uh, is traditionally found on bathroom tile. I don't know if you've ever been in a bathroom and seen like this pink or orange kind of hue in grout maybe, um, but it's that bacteria and it's an opportunistic pathogen. Um, so the way that that works is 
it, it won't be harmful in, in the oral cavity, but what it will do is if there's an opportunity for it to land, it'll then expand from there and kind of take over whatever it's in. Now it's not pathogenic. So some of these patients had no symptoms of oral disease. They, they took the test out of interest or, you know, for whatever reason. Um, but we uncovered this really big anomaly with their results. And while this bacteria isn't pathogenic in the oral cavity, it is extremely pathogenic if it makes its way into the body. Um, this bacteria, one of the bacteria that we found, I think was tied to one and a half percent of hospital acquired infections in the United States, causes severe respiratory infection. Um, and these patients, you know, we're, we're digging through the data and this is gonna be an ongoing kind of internal research study, but we have started to see associations between certain medications and this anomaly in the results, um, specifically with patients that are taking immunosuppressants or patients that have taken courses of antibiotics in the past. Do we know if this is picked up from places like bathrooms? Uh, we're, yeah, so we need to validate exactly where these bacteria are originating. Um, my, my unproven, take it with a grain of salt answer is I think a lot of people put their toothbrushes directly on the sink or in the bathtub, like on the, on the rail of the bathtub. And my guess is that that was the path of introduction for this bacteria into the oral cavity. And I, I think it's a mixture of that and the fact that very few people replace their toothbrushes as often as you should replace your toothbrush. How often for, for everybody listening? Do you have a there was yeah there was there was a study. I mean, I think replacing your toothbrush every I think the last recommendation I saw was every three or four weeks. Oh wow! Yeah, it's pretty often. Um, I would say more often if you put it on your sink. <laughs> Yeah. Or maybe you just buy a, a toothbrush holder. Yeah. Is, um, is the oral microbiome much like the gut microbiome in the way that we want more diversity? It's beneficial to have the diversity? Uh, the jury's out on that. There hasn't been enough research. Uh, there's been very little research looking at the connection between diversity and oral health. I think uh, initial studies have actually shown the opposite, that slightly lower diversity is tied to better oral health, but you know, the, the studies are extremely small populations. They I most likely used qPCR16S, which for us isn't kind of meeting the, the standard. Um, so that's, that's another thing that we wanna look into and it's an advantage of our platform is that as more people take the test, we'll be able to lead and, and disseminate a lot of these discoveries. Mm -hmm. what, what, what's the future for this space? What, what do you see in like 10 years or what do you hope for in say 10, 20 years time? I, I would like to see the same thing that we're seeing in every other area of healthcare. And, and I think the unfortunate thing is like oral health has just been the last, last person to the party. Um, you know, with, with infections and the gut microbiome, we're moving towards this idea of precision diagnostics, precision medicine, personalized care. And we're trying to do the same thing with oral health. Um, 
you know, I think there's there's some parallels with oncology as well. Uh, we're, we're starting to move into liquid biopsies, which is being able to detect uh, DNA that is shed from the earliest signs of a tumor. So these, these mutated strands of DNA in a blood sample. And by detecting cancer earlier, we can intervene sooner and have shown that that drastically improves outcomes on the other side. There's no reason to me why we can't take the same approach with oral health. Um, you know, our, our test detects the bacteria related to these diseases at the very smallest amounts before these physical symptoms have emerged. And when you detect disease that early, you can, you can intervene sooner and improve outcomes on the other side. So, I think that's kind of the first big lag is shift this reactive symptoms first approach to oral health to one that's prevention focused. The second leg, and I think we're seeing this in other areas of healthcare as well, is getting a lot more specific around how we diagnose disease. Um, Alzheimer's is actually a really good example. So there's a lot of areas in health where we have traditionally diagnosed diseases from a symptoms first approach. And I think Alzheimer's is, is one of those things where it is, to me, a, kind of an umbrella term, right? We haven't necessarily tied uh, types of Alzheimer's to specific causes yet, but we're kind of moving in that direction. And oral disease is kind of the same thing. Two people can have gum disease, periodontal disease, but that periodontal disease can be driven by completely different bacteria. And based on what bacteria is driving your condition, it, it may lead to, you know, one intervention being more effective than another. Um, so that's kind of the second leg is moving our, our idea of diagnosing disease into a much more precise characterization based on molecular analysis rather than uh, symptoms-based analysis. And then the third piece is really proving that improving oral health can improve overall health outcomes. I, I would love to see us kind of lead the charge showing that reducing certain pathogenic bacteria um, in the oral microbiome, you know, reduces the rate of, of heart disease or can help people better manage diabetes or, you know, reduce the rate of cognitive decline. Yeah, super cool. God, I, lo I just love where this is all going. Uh, it's very, very exciting a very very exciting time i think this the the last maybe decade leading up to the things that have been happening and everything that's going on now what's going to happen over the next 10 20 years very cool yeah that's it's been amazing i mean i think you know seeing technologies like like an aura ring that can oh. measure your sleep it's a it's a really good analogy like you wake up in the morning and before you had a an ability to measure your sleep and understand like what good sleep meant because man i feel like shit like i had a bad night of sleep um i guess i should go to bed earlier or i don't know and and now now that we can measure it i think we can it opens up the ability to understand and improve like at a scale that i think we just never been able to do yep yep I, I love it. I'm, I'm constantly running tests. In fact, some of the very first tests that I did were with the, I think like the, the second gen aura ring. And I did um, uh, like single case study design for myself for CBD oil for sleep, um, for certain peptides, um, GH releasing peptides, different types of magnesium, like these sorts of things. And you, you see the, the impact, like um, 
was it uh, probably about three nights ago. Uh, just started another three-month block of CJC-1295 and ipamorelin peptides. And my deep sleep goes from around 10, 11% to 18 to 20% overnight. Like it's just, wow. you I mean, like and the trends stay that way just because of these peptides. And that's, I, I think that it goes back to your, your comment around, um, you know, dietary changes. It's like everybody can stop eating sugar and kind of take that as a, as a net benefit. But I think that like cutting out sugar may drastically improve outcomes for a certain type of person, like in a certain population and, and maybe not be as beneficial for another. And like, there should be another change that's introduced, you know, to those people, but we, we will never know if we can't measure exactly. those changes and the outcomes. And, and that's really kind of the goal with bristle. Yeah, exactly. I, I love that because as you say, like, you know, with biochemical individuality, you just don't know unless you can measure it and test it and look at the trends and everything. Like, how do you even know? I mean, yeah, you can go off the subjective report, like I feel better and that might be okay with something like getting a good night's sleep, but there's no feeling better around the impact that of the things that we're doing is going to have three months time from now, a year from now, the impact that it has on reducing, you know, the, the likelihood of certain cancers or, or dementia or things that are going to impact us for decades from now, right? Like there's no feeling around that. Oh yeah, I feel like this thing that I'm doing is going to help me not get cancer in 30 years. <laughs> and I, I think it would be like, I think the other exciting thing here is that a lot of the, the interventions that we're uncovering aren't the most expensive and invasive and therapeutically complex options. It's not, you know, the, the insights that we're getting aren't, we need to go develop this billion dollar drug and bring it to market. It's look at how, a simple change in behavior or diet or lifestyle can have massive impacts on, on your overall health outcomes. Um, and it's all because we can quantify it fi finally. Yeah. yeah. That's a, that's a really great point. And I, I don't want to give our listeners and I've said this before um, the, you know, I don't want to implant this idea that, you know, you need to start going out and start taking peptides and doing all these sorts of, you know, crazy biohacking stuff. Like, simple simple things can have a massive impact like with sleep you know generally going to bed at the same time getting up at the same time in the morning getting some sunlight to uh to set that circadian cycle and making that regular can it is going to hugely impact the quality of sleep right there's so many free and cheap things that we can be doing uh, that, that have a really big impact I, yeah i mean for my sleep you know being able to kind of fine tune and say uh, I, not only do I feel better in the morning when I go to bed, you know, between nine and nine 30, like I can measure exactly the change in, in how and why I feel better. And, and that I think is the difference between implementing and really adhering to a lifestyle change and just kind of noting it in your head and then completely forgetting about it the next day. And you know, it's the repeated adherence to those changes that that's going to drive better outcomes. It's not this one-off, you know, oh, I feel a little bit better this morning. I'm going to go out till 2 a.m. tomorrow night. Yeah, yep, exactly. Uh, Danny, this has been a great chat. Uh, love, love what you guys are doing. Can't wait to see more. Where, where's, where do people go to learn more about uh, Bristol Health? 
Yeah, we, we are publishing content all the time. I would recommend um, everybody visit bristlehealth.com. We've, we've got a bunch of blog articles, a lot more on the way. Uh, I think people have been surprised about uh, just how much information there is. And, and I think it's a great learning experience. Love it. Awesome. Thanks very much for being on the show, man. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So that's it for this episode. If you want to support the show, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, drop a five-star review. And of course, you can connect with me on social with the links in the description. Thanks for tuning in. Talk to you soon.